As we come to hear from the living God in his word, as is our custom, let's begin in prayer. Gracious God, we praise you for the gift of your son. We praise you also for the gift of your spirit. And we do ask that now in this time as we come to your word, the word that your spirit inspired in its writing, that same spirit would minister to our hearts. We come as people with need, with heavy and broken, wounded hearts. We ask now that out of your grace and goodness and generosity, you would minister to us, enliven us, draw us to yourself, we pray. Amen. This season of Eastertide, we have been journeying through the book of Acts. We've been looking at the ramifications of the resurrection in light of the Easter miracle. What does the life of the early church, the early followers of the way of Jesus look like? We've seen, among other things, how the resurrection vindicates the way of Jesus, commends his way of life to us. We've seen how the truth embodied in Jesus after the resurrection collides with us. It, there's a collision of sorts that challenges our understanding of ourselves and the world. We've seen how the resurrection changes our lives and our life together as a community. This week we're continuing and concluding this series as we look at our reading from Acts chapter 11. Next week we have a guest speaker, Corey Tabor, who will be preaching from the book of Ephesians. And the week after that is Ascension Sunday, the end of the Easter season. So today is the conclusion of our series. And in some ways it is a fitting end. It's perhaps more than any other of the passages we've looked at thus far. We can see ourselves clearly affected by the events of this text. We are the beneficiaries in a real and profound way of what Luke, the writer of Acts, describes here in chapter 11 and also in chapter 10. Without what Luke describes here, the apostle Peter's taking of the gospel across ethnic and social boundaries, none of us would be here in the household of faith. None of us would be here. One of my most vivid memories as a child was the extended family on my mother's side gathered together, cousins and aunts and uncles, my immediate family, brothers and sisters, with my maternal grandfather, and hearing stories about his experiences on a naval minesweeper in the North Sea during World War II. And I'll never forget one particular moment he described that he found out he had been newly assigned to a, a brand new built and commissioned cruiser that would be stationed in the Mediterranean Sea. And the vision of warm weather and green seas appealed. He couldn't wait to go to the Mediterranean. To his dismay, however, a few days, just a few days before the assignment took effect, he heard news that five names were be, to be removed from the list of sailors headed to the new ship, out of the many dozens, even perhaps hundreds. The fourth name of five on the list, not going, was my grandfather's. He was crestfallen, he was disappointed. More time in the frigid, gray, windy seas of the north. Yet we all marveled, we were all sobered as he concluded the story recounting how just a week later that cruiser was destroyed, sunk with a massive loss of life. I remember my mother or father whispering to me, do you realize, but for that, none of us in this room would be here. We were all beneficiaries of this quirk of history. 
just as everyone in the room with my grandfather could recount, call their existence with gratitude to that fateful historical moment. Those of us here today who would count ourselves as disciples of Jesus are the recipients of what Luke recounts here. I know this is difficult to believe in Texas, the Bible Belt, but we are late comers. We have all begun as outsiders when it comes to the gospel of Jesus. We're all beneficiaries of what we see here. Last week at the conclusion of the sermon on Acts chapter 9, I, I talked a little bit about the expanding nature of the church, the community of the Good Shepherd, that it's an expanding thing. Today we see this play out, we see it come to fruition. In Acts chapter 10 and 11, the mission of the church is continuing, it's increasing. We get a glimpse of the church on mission in these chapters, crossing boundaries, carrying forth the good news of what God has done in Christ. And there's a few things perhaps that we can draw our attention toward that might be informative for us. The first thing, gloriously, what we see in Acts chapter 11 is that mission is fundamentally the work of God. In our reading this morning, Peter's being interrogated. What did you do, Peter? What, what have you done? The church in Jerusalem, those who are part of the circumcision party, which sounds like a great time, are, question, are questioning Peter's behavior. They're questioning Peter. What have you done? His actions. But in his answer, as he explains in order, it's all about the action of God, you'll notice. This vision, the sending of an angel to Cornelius, the man he visits. The same gift being poured out, the Holy Spirit falling upon these people. What Peter describes is himself caught up in this great sweep and work of God. God is the primary agent in the work of mission. And this reality, I think, is both an encouragement and an invitation to us. It's an encouragement because so many of us have been raised, have been cultivated in a particularly activistic picture of mission, of evangelism, of the Christian life. Often as we think about these kind of actions, there's an emphasis upon our deeds and doings, what we will do, what we will bring, or as is often the case, what we will not in fact bring, what we won't do. I should be doing more. I should have said that thing there, or I shouldn't have said that thing there. The work is ours. The center for the work resides with us. This is not the picture we get in Acts. The traditional title of this book is the Acts of the Apostles. But a truer, more complete title would be the Acts of the Holy Spirit among the Apostles. It's the Spirit's movement and work that is captured in these pages and chapters. It's the Spirit that is winning and wooing people to the reality of who Jesus is. It's the Spirit that's raising up the apostles as witnesses, that's building up the church. It's the Spirit that overcomes boundaries that once excluded others. I have to tell you, as a priest, this is such wonderful news. The work is the Spirit's. My work is not the primary energy source for Church of the Cross, for God's work in the church or in the world around me. Neither is yours. The work of bringing shalom, of, of carrying forth the gospel, of being a witness, 
is not first and foremost yours alone. It is the Spirit's. Psalm 127, verse 1, reminds us that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And the picture in Acts is of the Lord, by his Spirit, laboring to build his household. Think of the psalm we just prayed and heard sung, or sung, and that vision of all nations, all creation, giving glory to God, enjoying his presence. That is the end to which God himself is working, the work that he is accomplishing. An implication of the story we read this morning is that the work of God is wider than we might expect. That the Spirit is at work drawing people into the orbit of his kingdom, his life, in arenas, in areas that we might not expect, among people we might overlook. A number of years ago, I was chastened, I felt, when hearing a member of my seminary where I was studying talk about how he had begun to volunteer at a nonprofit in the downtown east side of Vancouver with a provocative name. It was called Boys Are Us, and it specifically served to meet the health needs of male sex workers in downtown Vancouver. He commented that he had begun there, and one of the people who was training him said, in the decades of the existence of this nonprofit, you are the first Christian to have ever served here. There are all kinds of complex reasons, perhaps, why Christians would not have served there, and perhaps differing worldview and all that contributed to it. But I was chastened by this sense that God is at work by his Spirit among these people, among people that I might prefer to ignore, that I might look away from. But he's working there He's working to win and woo people, to bring them into the saving orbit of Jesus. In the case of our reading, obviously, it's the gospel's transcendence of ethnic and cultural lines that's emphasized. God makes no distinction when it comes to the saving work of Jesus. He's at work among people that Israel, the followers of Jesus, had thought beyond the pale. However, I'm struck that in my own life, it might be the people most local, near to me, that I discount, that I I don't anticipate God working there, among my neighbors, the people I interact with every day, the places where we work, the people we see all the time who seem, well, they're closed off, they're not interested in some kind of way, our family, our friends. In his wonderful little book, The Sacrament of the Present Moment, Jesuit priest Jean-Pierre Cassaud describes God as a storyteller. And he says, the books the Holy Spirit is writing are living. Every soul a volume in which the divine author is making a true revelation of his word himself, explaining it to every heart, unfolding it in every moment. God is at work in the places where you study, where you serve and work, where you go, where you have coffee, You're on the bus. The Holy Spirit is actively speaking, ministering to the people around you. There's an invitation here as well. If we want to be near the God who is on mission, who is winning and wooing people to Jesus, then we ourselves must follow in that mission. In some way, mission is where God is, we might say. In our reading this morning, Peter begins, describes himself as having been praying. Anthony Bloom describes prayer as keeping company with God. 
beyond specific requests or forms, language of prayer. Keeping company with God is the core of what prayer is. This is what marks out Peter's life, we see. He's drawn near to God. He shares in communion with God. And that God is on mission. This, of course, plays out in Jesus' own life. In the Gospels, we see Jesus calls people to himself. He calls them to one another, the twelve, for example. And then he calls them to be participants in his work. The work of preaching, teaching, healing, announcing, proclaiming, embodying that his kingdom has come near. In Luke's gospel, written by the same writer of Acts, we see how Jesus sends out his followers. As those near Jesus with him, his disciples come to share in his work. They share with him in this. When I moved to Austin seven or eight years ago, I'll give you a confession. I could have cared less about the NBA and college sports. <laughs> just didn't care. But as I got to know some of you in this room who are big NBA fans or big Longhorns followers, as I come to share life with you, I started like, oh, I, I should know about that. During the college football season, I actually like intentionally on Saturday night look at the NCAA football scores because I know like, well, this person's an Aggie or this person follows Auburn and I want to be able to commiserate with them in their loss and share in their joy in some kind of way. And I've started to kind of enjoy it. I've been like, oh, there's cool stuff going on in the NBA. I've come to share in the enjoyment of this because I enjoy the people who are sharing it and who, who themselves, they're on about it. And so I've come to draw near to them and to draw near to them means to share in their interests, share in what they're doing. Jesus lives a life on mission. To be with Jesus, to keep company with him, means to share in that mission. A fundamental part of Jesus' own way of life was the invitation of others to experience the goodness and grace of God. As people on the way of the cross, patterning our lives after his, this is part of the pattern, part of the beauty, the goodness of that way. As I said at the beginning, we are beneficiaries of God's mission, the gospel, the sending of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. What Peter does here, the sending of others, parents or otherwise, who've nurtured us in the faith, we're the beneficiaries of all that. And part of the benefit, though, is that we become participants in the same work the same great story, the same drama, following after the work of the Spirit in the world around us. Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul writes, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in him. That stands in line with the blessing of Abraham in Genesis 12, blessed to be a blessing to the nations, a blessing that extends, that continues with the people of God through history beneficiaries, blessed to be a blessing. And at the heart of that work is the knowledge of God in Christ. For the past few months, the parish council have been reading this book called Everyday Supernatural. It has a, a great tagline. It says, how to be led by the Spirit without being weird. And we've been reading it and talking about it. And one of the chapter's titles is Everyone Gets to Play. Everyone Gets to Play. That is part of this thrust of mission, that no one stays beneficiary. To be just like a receiver of the gospel and to not be an active participant means you haven't received the full benefit of it. Part of the benefit 
of being drawn into the family of God is being about his business, being on mission with him. This is what we're called to do. Everyone gets to play. But what does this look like, actually, in our lives? What does this look like? Three words in closing that maybe give us shape, give us help in shaping what this looks like. Prayer, community, and hospitality. As I said, Peter's participation and mission in our reading begins in prayer. He says he was praying in Acts 10, where the, the events that Peter is describing actually are narrated by Luke, the writer. Peter is described as going to the roof of the house at the sixth hour, which was noon, noonday. This simple time designation puts Peter's prayer in this larger pattern or practice that marked out the people of Israel. Israel was known for the daily structuring of each day around specific times of prayer. If you've looked at the Book of Common Prayer, the Anglican kind of tome that shapes our life, we have the daily office, morning, noon, evening, compline, before bed, prayer services. They're an approximation, a continuation of this practice. Acts chapter 2 describes the life of the early church and names, among other things, the church's devotion to the prayers, meaning this kind of structure, this same rhythm, a life structured around keeping company with God with a God who is on mission. Our participation in God's mission and his renewal of all things, one of the values of our community, begins in prayer. It's rooted there. For all the drama of Peter's trance and vision, the angel's visitation, the transcending of these deeply held barriers, the courage that would have taken, it all begins in a life of company with God. Because it's in prayer, in voicing our hearts, in listening after God's, that we cultivate an awareness to him, to what he's doing in the world, a sensitivity to his spirit. We come to know and discern the promptings of what God is doing on mission. Part of what we're doing when we pray is cultivate an attentiveness to the Holy Spirit. Like many of you, this past week for me was full of all kinds of different activities, graduation parties, birthday parties, kind of schedule just life together. And it was striking, at every event I went to, people were talking about, oh, are you ready for the rain? You're anticipating the rain. You've got the umbrella in your car, the extra coat for the kids. You're wondering, oh, is this event going to have to be moved inside and that sort of thing. We've come to know how to discern the signs, right? The humidity, you can feel it building in the air. The sky darkens. I mean, maybe you cheat a little bit and you've got the Doppler thing on your phone and you know, <laughs> oh, it's coming. But you're anticipating, you're expecting, you're preparing for what you see coming. Prayer cultivates a similar thing among us. As we keep company with God, we become attentive. We come, become anticipatory of what he's doing in the world. We prepare our hearts and our minds for that moment where the conversation that the Holy Spirit is having with the people around us draws us in in some way, where there's an opportunity, where, where there's an invitation for us to come alongside what the work of the Holy Spirit is. It begins in prayer. A second word relating to how we participate is community. Mission is done together. Our reading describes a community in action, believe it or not. There's this questioning of Peter. The word is they doubted or they criticized. And it, that questioning actually grows into great division throughout the rest of the New Testament. 
But there is here, we see, a commitment to one another, a living out of the mission of God together as a community. Peter doesn't follow where the Lord is leading and then turn around and gets the question and say, well, forget you guys, I'm doing this on my own. We see Peter contending with those who question what God has done. They're part of the work of mission. In Luke's gospel, when Jesus sends out his followers, he sends them in twos, mission together. At the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus commissions his followers. He instructs them, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptize them into community. We have a membership class today, and as much as that membership in a church body has to do with institutional needs, a 501c3 needs members and all that kind of stuff. It's about so much more than that. It's about belonging together. Each week in the Nicene Creed, we affirm our conviction that we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. That word apostolic, among other things, means sent. There's a missional force to it. Sent out in the name of Jesus to bless, sent as one, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The work of mission involves community. It includes an invitation into this larger whole, the whole of God's household in Christ. In a world as estranged and alienated, as lonely as ours, a major part of the good news of the gospel is the promise of a place of belonging where division and estrangement once hold sway by the power and generosity of God, there's this possibility of life together. We must contend for it. Father Warner at Christ Church once recounted to me this delightful story of the church on mission in a humble way. He described how a small group he was a part of many years ago gathered for a social evening, just playing board games or something, a break from kind of the normal stuff. And members of the group were encouraged to invite friends from outside, outside the group, outside church, to come along and just enjoy this party, this time together. One member invited a friend who was a recovering alcoholic, who had for years struggled with significant substance abuse. And at the end of this evening, this humble evening, just being together, enjoying food, games together, at the end of this evening, this friend who, like I said, had struggled for years, said to the person who had invited them, your friends are intoxicated. Something of the life of God, his goodness and grace was made palpable and apparent to this person in the simple way that they shared life together. They were on mission together. Second word is community. Prayer, community. That togetherness, that belonging are expressed so often, I would suggest, in the third word, in hospitality. Community is often most richly known at the table. It's that Peter entered the house of Gentiles and ate with them. That is the problem, you'll notice. That causes the question. His vision is one of partaking of foods that were previously forbidden, the being mixed together with those foods that were allowed. The meal, the table, are central in God's expansion of his mission. Table fellowship. In his reflection on this passage, Filipino Chinese pastor Santos Yao cites this Chinese description of the family. The family are those people who eat together. It's a wonderful description of family. And Yao suggests no meaningful relationship can be forged unless accompanied sooner or later by a meal. 
Just yesterday, we had the Eastertide celebration, the crawfish boil. James Solo and others made this wonderful crawfish, and it was delicious. But honestly, it's a lot of work for a little bit of meat. <laughs> but the joy of it is often you're standing around the table. There's something social and beautiful about this. You're talking. You're engaging with other people. There's something of family. In Jesus' own understanding of his life and work, the language of meals, of tables, is paramount. He eats and drinks with sinners. The culmination of his time with the disciples takes place at a meal. Even after his resurrection, it's that he ingests food that people think this is not a ghost. He reveals himself to, the followers, to some followers in the breaking of bread. He restores Peter, who has disgraced himself, at a simple meal of fish. Jesus leaves us with a meal as a living reminder of what we now enjoy because of what he has done and a precursor of the feast to come that we saw in that reading from Revelation. In her book, Making Room, a book we as a church read a few years ago, Christine Pohl writes, a shared meal is the activity most closely tied to the reality of God's kingdom, just as it is the most basic expression of hospitality. That's not by accident that it's a, the metaphor that's so often used for the gospel and this basic thing of hospitality. Hospitality captures something of the mission, something of the gospel. We are the recipients of God's hospitality. Each of us can receive his embrace, as Nick talked about a few weeks ago. In Christ, we have been set apart, made clean. You've been rendered uncommon in the language of our reading this morning, made holy, such that we can now enjoy the hospitality of the living God, not by birthright, not by our accomplishment, but simply by his generosity, the gift. Through Jesus, we enjoy the hospitality of God. Jesus invites each and every one of us, despite our past, despite our failures, into the loving embrace, the warmth of God's presence by the cross. I know that this is so very difficult for some of us to hold on to. This reality is so very difficult for some of us to experience, that we have been welcomed, embraced, that we have received hospitality from God. So much in our world tells us that we need to earn our way in. So many of our experiences of abuse, of woundedness, tell us that we do not belong, that it is not safe. In my own life, the truth of this is difficult to hold on to. It's not the natural water I swim in. It takes discipline and practice for me to cling at times to the truth of this aspect of the gospel that I've been welcomed in. I have on my wall an icon of Rublev's Trinity. It's this representation of the Trinity, the three members at table. And the fourth spot of the table is open. It takes me sometimes sitting in front of that image to cling to the reality of what Jesus has accomplished, the space he has made for me, that I've been drawn in, invited into. But as we lay hold of that hospitality ourselves, as the Spirit confirms it in our hearts, we in turn can become extenders of that same welcome. 
more than beneficiaries, participants, players in the realm of God's abundant generosity, that others might receive the same gift as us. We're catching up with the movement of the living God. The simple act of welcoming someone else well and warmly. The extension of your meals, your table to include others. The naming of Jesus as Lord and Savior in simple, unassuming ways. Done with prayer, in community together, in the context of God's Spirit. These simple things can become means of grace by which others are drawn into the orbit of God's love in Christ, into his hospitable kingdom. Let it be so, may it be so, among us. Let's pray. Gracious and almighty God, just on that last kind of note, we, we do confess that it is difficult for us to conceive of the hospitality that we receive from you. It's difficult at times to hold on to the, the reality, the truth of the welcome that we have received in Christ. I know that many of us in this room come with wounds, come with experiences that might cause us not to trust, that might cause us to hold back, Would you freshly this morning, in your mercy, but with great power, confirm in our hearts the truth of the gospel, the warmth of the welcome that we have received in Jesus, that he has made possible for us. And would you, by that same spirit, strengthen and empower us, enliven our hearts and our minds, make us attentive to the work of your spirit as we leave this place that we might become participants in your good work, your mission. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.